0: Well, friends, three of the most important questions that anyone can ask him or herself are these Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Who am I? What is a human being? Did we emerge from the primordial slime? Are we just the sophisticated descendants of of tree shrews? Did we begin by some impersonal big bang that just seemed to happen out of nothing? Or are we the product of a creator, a personal creator that can explain the great complexity of our existence and the high level of our existence? And then why are we here? Does life have any purpose? How are we to spend these decades on earth that are given to us, whether they be few or many? Is there any purpose to life? Or are we like one writer of old said, uh, a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing? And friends, where are we going? Is there an afterlife? Or do we just go into unconscious oblivion like we were before we were born? Is there a conscious existence after we breathe our last on earth? And if so, does everyone go to the same destination? Or are there different destinies? Is there a heaven, a place of joy and happiness? And is there a hell, a place of torment and punishment? It is a marvel to me, and I I think it would be to you, that more people, more of our friends and family members, are not pondering those questions. Isn't it a marvel that more people are not burning with ants' desire for answers to those questions? And yet so many people are indifferent. It doesn't matter. I never think about that. It's a tremendous testimony to the spiritual blindness and deadness and darkness of the human soul that these questions aren't burning in the breast of every human being, but they're not. But well, we as Christians... Believing that we have revelation from the living God, we have solid answers to those questions, don't we? We have answers to the questions of origin, the questions of purpose, answers to the questions of destiny, both our individual destiny and the final destiny of the whole world. And on this day, when Christians especially celebrate the resurrection, you realize that every Lord's Day is Resurrection Day, right? But because this is the time of year when Jesus would have been resurrected, traditionally Christians pick one Sunday to especially focus on the resurrection. But on this resurrection, particular resurrection day, I want to focus you on a passage that gives marvelous insight, at least into the final events of human history and beyond. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And actually, I'm going to, this is the first of two messages I want to bring on a portion of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, as you know, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. They had a lot of sins, and they had a lot of questions and some errors. And in chapter 15, Paul is helping the Corinthians with a doctrinal hang up. Apparently, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus but they didn't believe or were questioning the resurrection of believers. And so we read in verse 12, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? They believe that Jesus was raised, but they didn't believe that there was resurrection in general. Well, in what follows in verses 12 to 19, Paul seeks to show them the the logical fallacies of denying the resurrection of Jesus. He travels with them down the trail of their logic and imagines, suppose Jesus has not been raised, what would be the consequences? And he considers several. He says our preaching would be empty. If there's an occupied tomb, there's an empty message. Further, your faith would be empty. It would be vain. Further, your faith, uh, we would be false witnesses of God because we'd be testifying that God did something which, in fact, he did not do if Jesus has not been raised. Further, he says, your faith would be vain. Your faith would be worthless. Your faith would not bring you into contact with a living Savior who has forgiven you of your sins, but you would still be in your sins. He goes on to say that, in addition to that, your loved ones who have died believing in Jesus have not gone to eternal rest with Jesus, eternal happiness, but they've perished. And finally, he says, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because what we're living for and striving for, what we're suffering for and dying for is a sham. It's a hoax. It's not true. And we have wasted our lives on a pipe dream. What a nightmare it would be for Christians if Christ had not been raised from the dead. But Paul only goes so far in that contemplation in giving the consequences of a a Christ that wasn't risen before he breaks forth with this glorious and victorious statement there in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He ends the nightmare. Do you occasionally have a nightmare? I'm glad that I think it's been a long time since I've had a nightmare. But sometimes we have bad dreams. We have nightmares. When you wake up from that nightmare, sometimes in a cold sweat, what do you do? It dawns on you, wait a minute, what I've just been dreaming about is not true. Thank you that it's not true. And you bask in the reality of what is true instead of what was true in your nightmare, right? And so Paul, after considering what would be true if Christ had not been written wakes them up from that nightmare and switches gears. And he affirms the truth that Christ has been raised and tells us the implications of that. Our text is going to be verses 20 to 23 today. I hope to take us to 28 next week, but I want to consider three points from 20 to 23. I'll read the text. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. The first thing we want to see is the triumphal declaration of Christ's resurrection and ours. First of all, there's an affirmation of Christ's resurrection. The first part of verse 20. After considering the possibility that Christ was not raised, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now the word now can either be a time word or a logic word. This happened before, but now, but here it's a logic word. In light of the possibility that Christ has not been raised, he says, but now, now in light of what really is, in light of the facts Christ has been raised from the dead. I'm here to tell you, Paul says, that it's true. Christ has been raised from the dead. And leaning upon what he said earlier in the chapter, he stands upon the resurrection as an incontrovertible fact rooted in human history and basic to the Christian gospel. And he's wiping away all those horrid thoughts of Christ not being risen. The nightmare of a dead Christ is not true. Our message is not an empty message. There's an empty tomb, and therefore our message has meaning. Your faith is not empty. We are not false witnesses of God, but we're telling the truth about God, that he raised Christ because he really did raise Christ. And your faith does not leave you in your sins, but your faith in a risen Christ connects you to a living Savior who has indeed forgiven your sins and those loved ones of yours who have died believing in Jesus, they really are in heaven. They have not perished. And then lastly, we are not of all men most to be pitied. If anything, we are of all people most to be envied by the rest of the world. So he begins by affirming Christ's resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. But then the implication of our resurrection, notice the second part of verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Asleep, of course, is a euphemism. He's talking about those who have died. But he refers to Christ as the first fruits. Now, the idea of first fruits would have been something that was familiar to the, to the Jewish readers of Paul. They understood from the Old Testament the significance of first fruits. It was taken from, it was a a picture of of, um, agriculture. In Leviticus 23, I read a couple verses beginning at verse 9. I have the right chapter, 23, 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. What was the first fruit? It was the first sheaf of grain that pointed to an entire harvest out there. The farmer would come in and he'd wave before the Lord this this sheaf of wheat or some other grain. And he would announce there's a whole field out there to be harvested. This is just the first fruits. There's a whole field out there to be harvested. And that, of course, is a picture of our resurrection. Christ was the first fruits. He's the first to be resurrected, but he's not the only one to be resurrected. As the first fruits, there's a whole field to be resurrected. All who will follow and believe in him will also be resurrected like he was. And it is, isn't it interesting there in Leviticus that the first fruit was to be waved on the day after the Sabbath? The Jewish Sabbath was the seventh day. What was the day after? The first day, the Lord's day. And that's the day on which Jesus was resurrected, as it were, being waved before the world as the first fruits of resurrection. Now, someone might be puzzled and say, now, wait a minute. If Christ was the first fruit of resurrection, weren't there others resurrected before Jesus? Well, certainly there were. Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. 1 Kings 17, Elisha the prophet raised the son of the Shunammite woman from the dead. In 2 Kings 13, we have a rather interesting story where a dead man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and when he made contact with Elisha's bones, he sprang to life. Jesus raised some people from the dead. He raised the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus from the dead. He raised the son of the widow in Luke chapter 7. And most famously, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And how can you say that Jesus was the first fruits of the dead? Well, these all were raised, but they died again. And then we have those who were resurrected but apparently didn't die. Moses, Enoch, Enoch, chronologically, Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. Elijah was taken, but apparently didn't die. And uh, how is it then Jesus is the first fruits? Well, Jesus was the first one to be raised, who was dead, was raised never to die again. So the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being the first fruits, implies the resurrection of believers. His resurrection points to a full harvest that will follow. And in a sense, that agricultural analogy is appropriate like the seed goes into the earth and dies, and then it brings forth fruit. Our bodies are like that seed. We're going to go into the earth. We're going to die. Our bodies are going to decay, but that decay, from that decay, will spring forth new life. Believers will spring forth with new life, resurrected life from the dead. And so here, Paul gains his point with his readers, They believed in the resurrection of Christ, but they were denying the resurrection of believers. And Paul says, wait a minute, you can't do that. One follows the other because Jesus has been raised. That necessitates the resurrection of his people, all who are in Christ. But next consider what I'm calling the theological justification of Christ's resurrection in ours. Here we look at verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ all will be made alive these statements indicate that behind the resurrection of christ is the grand scheme of god's plan of salvation you see the resurrection must not be seen as just some isolated fact of history, but we need to see it in view of redemptive history. We need to see it in light of the big picture, the meta-narrative of God's great plan of salvation. Where does it fit in? This, These verses tell us. You see, sin committed by our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought death into the world, physical death and spiritual death. God's plan of salvation is redemption. He's going to buy back. He's going to undo the effects of sin and the fall. He's going to reverse the decay and the dissolution, and bodily resurrection is part of that redemption. First, consider the introduction of death into the world. As the verse says, for since by man, death. Now, it's interesting that the nouns man has no article. There's no the. And what the apostle is trying to say is, by mankind, humanity brought death. Humanity introduced sin and death into the world. But then in verse 22, he's more particular, but it was through a particular man that death came into the world. In verse 22, as in Adam, all die. Humanity brought sin into the world. And it was a particular man of the human race, Adam, who brought sin into the world. This, of course, takes us back to the account in Genesis. And we know that God had given to the first man and woman the privilege of eating from any of the fruit of the garden in which they were placed. But he gave this warning and threat. There was one tree that was a probation for them. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And then we know what happened, recorded in Genesis 3, 6, that our first parents disobeyed God. And we read, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That was the introduction of sin into the world through our first parents. What was the result of that? Well, we read in verse 19, God comes with judgment. He says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. God made good on his promise. He said, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. And what happened? The seeds of physical death were sown in him and he was destined to return to the dust. Now, we know that the death, that happened was more than physical death, right? The idea of death is separation. And we know that there was a spiritual death that took place immediately. There was a, a, broke, uh, a break in the fellowship between Adam and Eve and God. We know that as we saw in the earlier hour in Sunday school, because they were driven out of the garden. They were driven out of the garden and a cherub, uh, an angel was put there with a flaming sword to keep them from entering back in, indicating that fellowship with God was broken. The result of their sin was spiritual death, a broken relationship with God. And that continues. As we saw again in Sunday school, we are all born dead in our sin. We are born spiritually separated from God and we are born with this mutual hostility between man and God. Colossians 1.21 tells us that we are by nature hostile to God. And Ephesians 2.4 says, we are children of wrath. So God is angry with us. God is displeased with us, the human race, because of our sin in Adam. And guess what? We're angry with God. Man by nature hates God. And so there's this mutual enmity. The spiritual death that resulted from Adam's sin. But in focus here is more the physical death that was brought about. Because from the time they sinned, he didn't drop dead on the spot, but he began to die. So that we read in Genesis 5.5, so all the days that Adam lived were 936, and he died. So physical death was the result of Adam's sin. Yes, it was spiritual but here the focus is physical, for as in Adam, all die. And a couple of illustrations to show that we are all sinners in Adam, and because of Adam's sin, we all die. One illustration is, is the piggyback ride. If you give your small child a piggyback ride or your grandchild and you stumble, the one on your back stumbles with you because... They are piggybacked on you. Well, in one sense, we can say the whole human race was piggybacked on Adam, and when Adam fell into sin, the whole human race fell with him. We've all fallen into sin. Another illustration is to look at Adam as the engineer of the locomotive, and behind him is a a string of passenger cars representing the entire human race, and each of us is in one of those passenger cars. And when Adam crashed the locomotive, it had a ripple effect, a domino effect. And everyone in those cars being pulled by that locomotive were affected by Adam's crash. And so Adam sinned. Adam disobeyed. Adam was sentenced with death. And so in Adam, all die. We are all under a death sentence. Adam was our representative head, our federal head. We were all comprehended in Adam there was a solidarity, there was a oneness, so that what Adam did counted for us. Now, when it says, as in Adam all die, who are the all? Well, in this case, it's all the entire human race, because we are all in Adam. All of us descend from those first parents, right? We can all trace our genealogy back to those two people in the garden, Adam and Eve. So the all here who die in Adam is everyone of the human race without exception. So Adam sinned and he brought death upon himself, spiritual death, driven from the garden, physical death, within years he died. But the whole human race was represented by him and in him. And so we all die physically and die spiritually in Adam. And so we have the introduction of death that came through Adam's sin. But now consider the counteraction of death. Look at the second part of those verses. Since by man death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God has a plan from all eternity. We saw in the previous hour that God ordained man's fall into sin. He ordained it. He ordained everything. He's not the culpable cause. He can't be blamed for any sin. But God ordained the fall to happen. But he also decreed a way of redemption, that there would be an antidote to counteract the effects of sin. Now, that counteraction required a man. Look again at verse 21. For since a man, without the article, since man, humanity, death, by man, no article, came the resurrection from the dead. In other words, as it was humanity that brought us into death, sin and death, it must be someone who is fully and qualitatively human who must counteract the effects of that sin. And then in verse 22, he's more specific. Not only humanity, not only one who's qualitatively human, but a particular man, Adam, brought us into sin. So in the end of verse 22, there was a particular man that, Came to counteract the effects of sin, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Christ is the one who brings life, and you read the Gospel of John. You read throughout the Scriptures, Christ is associated with life. John one four: In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John ten ten: I have come, Jesus says, to bring life and to give it more abundantly. First John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Death is multifaceted. It is spiritual. It is physical. It is eternal. And life is multifaceted. Jesus came to bring spiritual life, to bring physical life, resurrection of our bodies, and to bring eternal life. You see, in Adam... We have a death sentence. Our bodies are destined to lose their vital functions. Our hearts will stop pumping blood at some point. Our lungs will stop breathing. Our limbs will stop moving. Our brains will cease their activity. Our bodies are destined for the grave, for decay and decomposition. But in Christ, there's going to be recomposition. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be resurrection from the dead. And our destiny is to have a body just like Jesus. Philippians 3.21, Paul says, when Christ returns, well, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's his second coming, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The life Christ will bring, here in the context, means resurrection life. We will have a body forever, just like the body of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. So it says, as in Adam, all die. That's the whole human race. But now when it says, in Christ, all will be made alive, to whom does that all refer? Everybody dies in Adam Who are made alive? Who are the all who are made alive in Christ? There are some who will say that everyone eventually is going to be saved. And some would say even the demons will be redeemed. That's called universalism. And we would say that's a heresy. That is not taught in the Bible. The Bible indicates that there is a place of punishment, hell, and it's not a vacant place. It is a place that will be, is already populated. So who is the all who will be given life in Christ? Well, let me first say, just for clarity's sake, that everybody will eventually be resurrected. Are you aware of that? Listen to Jesus in John 5, 28 and 29. There's going to be a resurrection of every human being. John 5, 28 and 29 Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth from the tombs. Those who did good, the good, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Everyone's going to be resurrected. The wicked will receive a resurrection body and the believers will receive a resurrection body. But who is being spoken of here when it says, In Christ, all will be made alive. That verb uh, zoopoeo in the Greek will be made alive. does never refers to the wicked. It only refers to the believer. So who are the all who will be made alive in Christ? Well, follow me here. Verse 23 says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's. Who are the all who will be given resurrection life? Those who are Christ's. Those who belong to Christ. Who are they? Well, Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So who are Christ's? Those who have the spirit of Christ. And how do you come to have the spirit of Christ? I refer you to another verse, and that is John seven thirty nine. Listen carefully to that verse, and then follow the logic here. But it, this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Follow the logic. Who are the all who will be made alive with resurrection life in Christ? Those who belong to Christ. Who belongs to Christ? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Those who have the Spirit. And who has the Spirit? According to John seven thirty nine, those who believe in him have the Spirit. So those who have who look forward to resurrection life with Jesus, are those who have believed in Jesus, been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and their lives display the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So here is Christ, the second Adam, who has come to reverse the work of the first Adam. We see the necessity of humanity. It was humanity who brought sin and death into the world, And so it must be one who is qualitatively human who will undo that work. And the particular man who has come to do that is Christ. In Adam, we all die. In Adam, we are dead spiritually. And if we die physically, when we're dead spiritually, we will die eternally. And our bodies will be raised, but to a resurrection of judgment so that those who are raised to that judgment will suffer not only in their souls, but in their bodies forever. But for those who are in Christ, they will be raised. They will be made alive spiritually in this life. Then when he comes, they will be raised with resurrection bodies. One more brief point, what I'm calling the temporal succession of Christ's resurrection in ours. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. There's a causal connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection. In Christ, we are all made alive, but there's a temporal order. Christ's resurrection is first. That happened in conjunction with his first coming. The resurrection of believers will happen at his second coming, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ, when? At his coming. Jesus was raised when he came a first time, Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, the bodies of believers will be raised to spiritual and eternal life. So what do we see here in conclusion? Paul is entertaining the Corinthians' denial that Christ has not been, that that there's no resurrection. And he goes down that trail and he shows them what a nightmare that is if Christ has not been raised. But then he comes forth with this glorious affirmation, but Christ has been raised from the dead, but not only for himself, he's the first fruits because Christ has been raised. There's a whole field that will be harvested. All who are in Christ will be, be made alive with him and given resurrection bodies. That is God's grand scheme of redemption. You see the big picture? Adam messed it up. Adam brought sin. Adam brought death, spiritual death, physical death. God in his grand plan sends a second Adam from above who did not disobey, but obeyed at every point. And he undoes what Adam did and he... um, brings life where Adam brought death. And if anybody says in the Corinthian church, well, look, I I know that Christ was raised, but I haven't seen any evidence that any Christian has been raised That's because it hasn't happened yet. That's because it will happen when he comes a second time. Now, next week, I want to finish this passage and For me, it's a big hint as to our eschatology. You know, Christians have different ideas about how things are going to end, right? And these are kind of in-house family disputes, and we probably have different views here as to how it's all going to end. I'm going to reveal a little bit of my eschatology next week from this passage and see if it makes sense to you, because he's going to go on beyond this and tell of intervening events before the very end. So, a dose of eschatology next week. Make sure you, you come to hear that. But for now, I want to make several applications. First of all, a couple of doctrinal applications. From this passage, we see the necessity of the full humanity of Jesus. As through man came death, without the article, one whose qualitatively human, death came into the world. Therefore, Anyone who's going to reverse the effects of that must be qualitatively human. And it's an argument for the full humanity of Jesus. The biblical doctrine is he is fully God and fully man. And we must affirm both. Right. John says dealing with Gnostics in first John four, if anybody, you know, denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's not of God. So Jesus was fully man. He had to be to undo the work of the first Adam who was fully human. Doctrinally, we also see the vital necessity of affirming the truthfulness of the historical accounts recorded in the Bible. There are some who want to see the early chapters of Genesis as myth, but you can't do that and be true to the Bible. A historical Adam is necessary to understand human sin. If Adam wasn't a historical personage, then then sin is a myth. But it's saying, as through one man whose name was Adam, a particular historical personage, sin came into the world. And when you see the parallel between Adam and Christ, if Adam was a myth, what about Christ? Adam is regarded as as much a historical figure as Christ. As in, Adam all die. So in Christ all shall be made alive. You want to deny that, that Adam was a historical person? Well, that calls into question the veracity and historicity of Christ. No, the Bible presents those facts in the early chapters of Genesis as absolute history to be trusted in. We don't just say, well, we trust the general spiritual message of the Bible, but on history, eh, it's questionable. No, no, the history is God breathed. There was a real Adam. Otherwise, sin is called into question and the reality of Christ is called into question. But then practically, this passage gives us comforting assurance of our own resurrection from the dead. Now, you know the picture that we have in the Bible. If we die before Christ returns, we will go disembodied into the presence of God. There's no soul sleep. How do we know? The Apostle Paul, as he was in a Roman prison, contemplating whether he preferred to live or die, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I don't know whether I want to go on living or or dying, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. The moment we die, your spirit goes in a perfected state into the presence of Christ. You are conscious and enjoying the joys of heaven in a disembodied state. But that's not our ultimate. And also, we have... um, 2 Corinthians 5.8, which teaches us that 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You're consciously in the presence of the Lord. And, and those loved ones of ours who have died in Jesus are with Jesus and they're enjoying heaven now without a glorified body. But our ultimate destiny is when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive will be caught up together with them. And so we will always be in the, with the Lord We will live forever with glorified bodies. So we will serve and glorify our Lord on a new earth, not merely as souls, but as re-embodied souls. We will have new bodies like the body of Jesus when he was resurrected. And then one final application. It's all about being in Christ. Did you see that? There are two humanities. Those in Adam. We're all born in Adam. And when we're born in Adam, we inherit Adam's sin. We're born spiritually dead. We're born hostile toward God. We're born with our backs turned toward God. We're born destined to die physically, but we're destined to die eternally in hell by virtue of being in Adam. But then there's that little subset of people who are in Christ. In Christ, we will have to die physically but in Christ, we've been made alive spiritually in this life through believing the gospel. We will live eternally with resurrected bodies with Christ. If anyone is not a believer, your great need is to get out of Adam and into Christ. You were born like the rest of us, and you're born in Adam. You inherited the sin of Adam, the guilt of Adam, the sinful nature of Adam. And you will inherit this, not only physical death, but eternal death through Adam's sin and your own sin. Your only way of escape is to get out of Adam and into Christ. How do you do that? You have to belong to Christ. And that means you have to have the Spirit. And you have the Spirit by believing in Jesus. So you need to believe in Jesus, that he is the only Savior. All my efforts are in vain. I can't do anything to earn God's favor and acceptance. Jesus paid it all. I need to trust in Him fully. And if you do that, it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And then the Spirit will live in you, and you will be Christ's. And therefore, in Adam, all die, in Christ, all will be made alive. You will already be spiritually alive, and then when you die physically, You will not die the second death, but you will be with him. And then eventually you will receive a resurrection body from him. So if you're an unbeliever, and I know most of us here are believers, but if you're not a believer in Jesus, your great need is to get into Christ. See that those two words are precious words in Christ. that Little preposition means to be in saving union with Jesus Christ, savingly attached to Jesus so that he is your savior. And you don't have to pay for your own sins. You desperately need to get into Christ and die in Christ. Then you will die and be with him forever. That's the Christian hope. And if it's not yours this morning, may God's grace enable it to become your hope as well. Let's pray and sing a final hymn. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you died and rose, you did it not merely for yourself, but you did it for the great harvest of believers, that in you, we too will be made alive with resurrection life. Thank you, Lord. We pray for any who are among us who have not partaken of that life. They are still in their sins in Adam. Would you give them grace to repent and believe and come to be in saving attachment to you, Lord Jesus, in Christ. We ask for your mercy on them in Jesus' name.